0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, reconnecting to the essence of you. Dave Combs is my guest today. He's a songwriter, photographer, entrepreneur, and author with four decades of experience writing over 120 songs and creating 14 albums of soothing, relaxing instrumental piano music. His songwriting began with the now popular standard Rachel's Songs, which has been played millions of times in radio and popular media streams, and it continues to touch the lives of millions of people all over the world. He's also the author of the best-selling new book, Touched by the Music, How the Story and Music of Rachel's Songs Can Change Your Life. Hello, Dave, and welcome to Back to Basics.
1: Thank you, Letitia. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this. Me
0: too, me too. I definitely want to hear everything about Rachel's song. But I first, and you have, I mean, when we released the video portion of this podcast, a beautiful piano behind you, two beautiful pianos behind you, actually.
1: Well, actually, one is the Steinway Grand Piano, and the other one over here is actually a Kurzweil keyboard. It's a synthesizer. Oh, but so Beautiful. My- So my wife can play the piano, and I can play the keyboard, and we can play duets together.
0: Awesome. Great. That that sounds great. So, Dave, I always like to start with the origin story. Tell us a little bit about where were you born and raised, and how was your childhood, and if if music was a part of your childhood to begin with.
1: Well, I was born in the mountains of East Tennessee in a little town called Irwin, Tennessee, E-R-W-I-N, Tennessee. It's right between... Johnson City, Tennessee, and Asheville across the mountain in North Carolina. So I was born in this wonderful, beautiful valley in uh, Unicoi County. They call it the valley, valley Beautiful for a good reason. It is really a beautiful place. And uh, I grew up, uh, was born into a musical family. My mother and father both played the piano, and my grandmother Combs, she played an old pump organ and an instrument, which I have right here beside me. This is called an auto harp. This is, this is my grandmother's Oh original my God, instrument. that's
0: so beautiful.
1: So I can remember my grandmother playing this instrument many, many times. And so I, so I grew up around music and, uh, just loved it. Of course it was involved with church. I'm a Baptist. So I went to the Baptist church and, and the choir music and hymn singing and, you know, quartets, any kind of special music, organ and piano duets, those were all really special memories for me. So growing up around music, obviously, you uh, I think it becomes part of you. And so I took piano lessons like most kids around eight or nine years old, a couple of years, and learned at least how to read some music. But then I kind of went on the route of I wanted to teach myself. I wanted to not stick with the the routine of, I was obviously not going to be a classical music (laughs) pianist, (laughs) I wanted to just make pretty music. So the rest of it, I kind of taught myself by, you know, reading and being around other musicians and, you know, you go to jam sessions on a Friday night with other musicians and just make music or, you know, a lot of my friends were musical. And so music was a big, big part of my growing up. That is great. and it continued even through in high school in the high school chorus. And I was I made all state chorus for the high school, went to Nashville for the big, big performance. And and uh, then in college, I sang in the university choir as a volunteer. You know, anybody can sing in the, the university choir. So I did that. And but I was a math major and a physics minor. So I'm a technically technical oriented person. I'm, oh, wow. <laughs> I guess you might call me a computer geek or something. But anyway, I love technology and and you and I have a lot in common. I have my whole career was in the telecommunications industry. Oh, wow. So I worked for 22 and a half years with Western Electric AT&T network systems. And then later I was the chief information officer for the United States Department of Agriculture. And I worked some part of the time in rural utility service, which you may or may not be aware mm-hmm. familiar with, but it's the telecommunications arm of uh, USDA. So mm-hmm.
0: that is incredible.
1: <laughs> so telecommunications is a big part of my background as well. But mm-hmm. music was always the underlying personal foundation for my relaxation. When I would come home, I would come home and sit down at the piano and just play something to, to relax and and chill out a little bit uh get my take my mind off of the work and just you know relax
0: wow so that's, that's fascinating
1: so my so my background is really a, a kind of a, a diverse thing from the technical side and then on the other side is the creative side with music but they they, they both i think complement each other and eventually i was able to do my music side of my my desires full time starting in 1992.
0: Oh wow. That's uh I should have. I should connect you with my husband because that's my husband, who's also oh, an ele- electronic mm-hmm. engineer. <laughs> okay. And, and he's that in that transition. And I tell him you have to intersect music with technology. He's also in telecom, but uh, and you're not the first guest. I, I've had at least four engineers on the show that are very good musicians, and uh, but you're the only one that has successfully. Uh, transition that into like a full-time into music. And uh, they all have shared that kind of like will willingness that they would like to know how to mm-hmm. make that transition, but it's not easy. And uh, you know, for people that have long careers, you know, in big companies and all that. So I definitely, I'm interested if you want to share, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure they will want to listen to this episode. <laughs>
1: Well, I'd be happy to to share that story. It is a it is a journey though. It is not a single story obviously. It's uh when you go from, you know, a college degree with math and physics and work for 22 and a half years in that technical industry and then begin my musical journey actually really began in earnest with the creation of the song that you talked about in the introduction, Rachel's mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm. In 1991 in January I came home from work one evening and sat down at my piano and just started playing this song. And it wasn't a song that I had heard before. It wasn't, I really didn't even think of it as playing, writing a song. It was just, I sat down. It's hard to, I know it doesn't sound <laughs> plausible, but I just sat down and I played this song from beginning to end the verse and the chorus, everything. And I, I loved what it sounded like. I loved the, the, you know, the I, I liken it to me having a conversation with the piano. When I sit down at the keyboard, I, I will play something and it's the sounds and the tones and the, the chords. And I, I'm sure your husband that loves music on it, he can just sit down with his guitar. He can probably just, you know, strum, a you know, a C major seventh chord and just kind of listen to it. And perhaps a little melody will come into his mind or something. It's just a communication between you and your instrument. Yeah. Or maybe from somewhere else on high through the instrument to you. I don't Mm -hmm. know. But anyway, I sat down that evening and I played this song. And then a couple of days later, my wife came home from work. She was working at the local bank at the time. And she came in and she says, Dave, what is the name of this song I've had stuck in my head all day long? You know how you get a, they call it an earworm stuck in your your brain. You, You hum it all day. And she hummed a little bit of it. And I said, well, it doesn't have a name. And she said, what? You play it all the time on the piano. I said, well, it's just something I made up. Mm-hmm. She said, wow, you just made that up. I said, yeah. She said, well, have you written it down? I said, no, I've got it up here. It's not going anywhere. And she said, no, no, you better write that down. So if something happened to you, that song, would we'd have that song at least. Mm-hmm. So I did write the notes and the chords down on a piece of paper and stuck it in my piano bench. And I would play it periodically. And we tried to come up with a good name for it. No, nothing we ever came up sounded appropriate. Just didn't fit the song. And then two years later in 1983, some good friends of ours had a little baby girl named Rachel. Mm -hmm. They asked me and Linda to be her. Her parents asked me and Linda to be her godparents. So at, at Rachel's christening service, Linda and I are sitting there with just us and the family and the minister. And at the front of the church was a grand piano sitting at the front in the middle of the platform. Beautiful piano. Well, it's like those guitars behind you. If you're a guitarist, mm-hmm. yeah, you're, you're a nice lady to look at, but those guitars also are going to catch our <laughs> attention as well, you know. So anyhow, so we're looking at the uh, uh, sitting there and I'm, I'm thinking about that piano. And at the end of the formal part of the service, I punched Linda and I said, hey, what about if I play that song we've, we've been trying to name? What if I played it now as part of the end of this service? Oh, that's a good idea. So I went up and asked the family and the minister if it'd be okay if I played a, a song on a piano, and they said yes. And so everybody sat back down, and I went over to the piano and sat down and started playing. And I started playing this tune, and I got sort of halfway into the song, and I I hear this sniffling, and and I noticed that I was having some tears running down my cheeks, and it was it was a you know a christening service is an emotional experience anyway with the The beautiful little baby girl and all the wonderful things. It's just a very touching experience. So and when I finished playing the song on the piano, I looked over at little Rachel in the arms of her mother. And I said, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's Song in Her Honor.
0: Wow, that is like, a beautiful christening gift from godparents. I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Godmother mother of a few kids and I'm like, oh, that beats anything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so anyway, that's how the song got its name and it was just the perfect name. It just was exactly a, like a hand in glove. It was perfect. Well, you roll the t- roll forward about 3 years, I was doing a lot of traveling with Western Electric at the time. We were implementing some new software in our factories, and that was my specialty. And so I was having to travel around the country to different factories. But one of the factories I had to travel to and spend a lot of time at was in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Well, mm, <laughs> as you know, Nashville, Tennessee is Music City, USA. And so I love Nashville. I always have, always will. But Linda said, Well, while you're in Nashville, why don't you go and find a, a studio and a musician and get a demo recording made professionally of Rachel's song? Something we could have and, and we could give to the to Rachel and her family to enjoy. I said well, that's a great idea. So one evening after work, I'm driving around Nashville looking for a studio, and I'm over in the part of town they called they call Music Square. It's like two square blocks of nothing. Everything in there is music. It's BMI headquarters and. ASCAP headquarters, the Country Music Hall of Fame and RCA studios that you can tour and, you know, it's just everything music. So I'm driving down this one little side street and the name of the street is called Roy Acuff Place. Mm-hmm. Roy Acuff was a very well known, famous musician in Nashville for many, many years in the ground, the Grand Ole Opry and everywhere. And they named a the street after him. And at the end of Roy Acuff Place, was this building that had a roof that looked like a barn. It was a a great big barn looking place. And out in front on the street, by the street, was this huge music mill. uh, was a a mill, the wheel, you know, the water wheel. Uh okay. The water wheel from an old mill. And uh, so on the sign on the side of the building, it said the music mill. So I thought, okay. So I pulled in the parking lot. And sure enough, I could see a man sitting behind a desk in the lobby. And so I went over the door, knocked on it, and he came, unlocked the door and opened it and said, "Uh, Hi, I'm George Clinton. Can I help you? And I said, I sure hope so. I'm looking for a studio where I can get a demo recording made of a little song I've written. He says, Well, come on in. So I went into the lobby and as I stepped in the room, I looked over to my left and here was a huge life size picture of Glenn Campbell. And then here's a great big life-size portrait of the, of the group, the Alabama, mm. and the Forrester Sisters. And then there were gold records and platinum records you know, framed on the wall all the way around, and it was just a, obviously a music place. So <laughs> I thought, wow, I've, <laughs> I have found a really good studio. And I told George, I said, now, I have never been in a studio before, so I have no idea what I'm, what I'm looking at here and he said, "Well, there's nobody recording right now. Let me give you a tour of the studio." So he took me over. "So let's go to Studio A, which is the big studio." So he took me in there in this big room where all the musicians are usually located. It was big enough to hold a, you know, a, a, an orchestra. And mm-hmm. over in the corner was a 9-foot grand piano and, you know, there was isolation rooms for the drummers and all this kind of stuff and so George says, why don't we go into the, the control room? Let me show you the control room. So he opens this this big, thick, about eight inch thick door that's soundproof, and he opens it up. and We go in this big room, and uh, it's got all the control equipment. And first thing I see is this console. It it looked like it was eight feet long. It had you know sliders and switches and tracks and lights and all kinds of stuff on it. It looked really impressive. Turns out I think it was like a, a thirty two track console, big console, and around the room was these digital tape recorders and uh, all kinds of equipment, big speaker, monitor speakers up in front so that you could hear really good sound from what they were recording. And and I said, wow, this looks like you could launch a spaceship from in here. And he said, I said, how much does this thing rent for? And he says, well, it's one hundred and twenty five dollars an hour plus engineer. I thought, hmm, that's, that's pretty, you know, remember this was 1986. Of course, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so to, today that would probably be, I don't know, 400, over $400 an hour today. Yes, yes. But uh, he said, well, don't worry about it. He said, the fellow who owns this studio also owns a little tiny studio across the street in what used to be a rent house. And they've it's converted to a studio and it's $15 an hour. I said, okay,
0: that's I can where do that. <laughs>
1: that's what, that's, that's for me. So, so anyways, I said, well, now what I need is somebody to play my music for me. Do you know a good piano player that would do the demo for me? And he thought for a second. He says, I know just the person. He says his name is Gary Prim, and he and I go to church together, and he's a wonderful session piano player, keyboard player, with the synthesizer and piano. And he said, I'm sure he'll be happy to do it for you. So he said, let's go back over to my desk. And I'll look up his phone number for you. So he went back over and went to his Rolodex and and looked up Gary Prim, wrote down the phone number and handed it to me on a piece of paper. So I, I was really excited. Now I've got everything I needed to do. So I, I hustled back to the hotel and called Gary Prem's phone number, got his answering machine and left the message. And then he called me back in about 30 minutes. And so uh, he says, This is Gary Prem, Can I help you? And I said, Well, I've got this little demo song, song I need a demo recording made of. And George Clinton says that you would be happy to do that for me. He said, oh, yeah, I'm sure I can do that. What do you need? He said, well, just send me a a cassette tape, a recording of you playing it. So I'll know what it kind of what it sounds like and send me a lead sheet. And I said, "Okay, what's a lead sheet? (laughs) I was showing my really I was really green behind the ears or wet behind the ears, as they say. I, I didn't know the lingo of the, of the music business. So he says, Oh, it's just the melody and the chords written down on a piece of paper. I said, well, I've got that. I just didn't know to call it a lead sheet. So I got back home, sent Gary the lead sheet and the tape recording of me playing it. And a couple of weeks later on August the 22nd, 19 and 86 at 6 PM. I'll never forget it. I met Gary at this little tiny studio. And he comes in with it carrying his synthesizer. It was a Yamaha DX7 synthesizer. It's a wonderful, I have one just like it sitting right over here in my room. And it's a wonderful sounding analog synthesizer. And so he comes in, he sets up, and after the introductions, he sits at the piano and starts warming up a little bit. Pretty soon, he's ready to record. So the engineer's got everything ready, so he pushes record button. We're rolling. You know, that he. To let him know, (laughs) all right, we're we're recording. And Gary starts playing my song. Now, remember, I had never heard my song played by anybody else but me. Uh, Up until this point, I had no idea what to expect from this professional piano player, this musician. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Well, he got about halfway through the song and he kind of stopped and he said, let's let's rewind. Let's do that. I can do that better. So rewind the tape. And and it literally was a tape. It was a two-inch recording tape that back then. And uh, so rewind the tape, start over. Gary plays the song all the way through from the beginning to the end. Perfect. You know, he is obviously a professional musician. And if you've ever been around professional studio session musicians, they are amazing. They can do unbelievable things just out of their head. I mean, they they're not got everything written out. They're playing from right up in here. So, uh, he finished that and I'm, I'm just, I'm sure I had my mouth open. I was just in an awe of mm-hmm. what I was hearing. So he comes into the control room and he says, now let's set up. I want to add some more things. I'm not done. He says, I want to add some more sounds to it. He said, I think the the song needs some some strings. And I also I want to I double that piano part on the keyboard, do an electric piano sound along with the regular piano, which gives it a really rich, full sound. So he sets up synthesizer and electric piano, two more tracks, and he's got the headphones on like you have on there, and he's listening to the original piano part through his headset and playing the new part on the keyboard with the electric piano. And he nails it. I mean, even though he's playing it with feeling and it's not a, you know, there's no click track or no, no direct beat. It's just by him playing it with feeling. He Still, he nailed all those notes, same feeling that he had on the real piano. And then he got through that and he says, okay, let's do the strings. So we're going to do some low strings and high strings low to give it some bottom and high strings to just give it some top. So two more tracks, low strings. And he sits there and records now with the string sound in with the synthesizer. Two more tracks puts in the high strings sound with the synthesizer. And then in the middle of the song, he did something that I never did with my arrangement of it. I, I always played it in the key to C and that was it. He played the verse and the chorus twice in the key of C. And then at, for the third verse, he basically bumped it up a half a step to the key of C sharp. There was no transition, no modulation. It was just C and then boom up to C sharp, which was kind of what I would call a musical surprise. And, uh, he, he just did that to, give it a, an extra level of energy which you can feel when you listen to the song. And so he uh he did that and then when he got through uh with with that part of it he 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 said I think I need to add some horns in there just to give it a little more punch when I right when I'm going to change keys up to the C sharp. So he he did and uh, and he added the horn sound. And then he came back in the control room he said I well I think that's it. I think, Will, uh, that, that's good enough to, to to do. So we listened to it. Perfect. It was great. I still couldn't believe it. I'm, I know I was just totally in awe of what I was hearing. And uh, so I wrote him a check for the agreed upon fee, and, and he packed up his synthesizer and walked out the door. And I, I, I had no idea whether I would ever see Gary Prim again or not. But uh, it turns out that he and I would end up doing over 170 songs in the studio over the years. Uh, we record basically a whole album every year for about 14 years.
0: That is and, incredible.
1: But at that point, I did not know whether I would ever see him again or not. But uh, it turns out we became very, very close friends, still are. And he is still a very active and very much in demand session musician in Nashville, Tennessee.
0: That is a beautiful story, and thank you for giving all the details. Because I love, you know, the magic of all those coincidences, and I think that those are the ones people forget when they say, "Oh, how am I gonna do this? I don't know anybody. I don't know." My husband was just in Nashville. Funny you say. Last two weeks ago, uh, for work, for a telecommunications uh, convention. And he comes back with a custom made Gibson guitar. And I'm like, and I'm like, well, uh, it's obvious that the music <laughs> is a big part. And, um, and so he said, oh, this has been a dream just to go there. And I said, well, if there's, you know, the telecom show and the, and the, and the music thing, and, the, and that's where he gravitated, that, you know, of course. Oh, yes. And, um, so I can I can relate because I have this fresh in my mind when he came back with that guitar well they they ship it over actually but yes. in any case but it's funny because people say well I cannot do this because I don't know how I don't know a studio in Nashville and I don't know someone and just just your story put it so beautifully how all those little things were you know and and, and I'm also big in faith and I think that there's the cosmic dance as they call it That, you know, there's the general dance and the cosmic dance. And if you're Mm -hmm. open to follow the cosmic dance, it takes you places where, you know, others cannot go. And you were open to exploring and it took you to so many places. And of course, the the song is beautiful. I heard that, of course, it's beautiful. And it's on on your webpage, And I will share the link for for the audience. But also how you became friends with the person that you created that song and how that really became a big thing. It's incredible.
1: Yes. And you know you're talking about these co- these co- they're really not coincidences. There's a Squire Rushnell wrote a little book called When God Winks, mm-hmm. and so he calls those things God winks. When mm-hmm. you run into somebody, when you meet somebody, when you look back on it, there that that meeting was no accident. It was it was meant to be, and so I have had many of those what I call God winks in my musical journey. In fact, I write about those in my book. A, and i call them god winks and give credit to squire for coining that term but uh it's just a there there have been so many crossroads and, mo- and we call those there's three different kinds of moments in your life you have some defining moments which are things that happen to you you have no control over like right? you know nine eleven was a defining moment for the united states Uh, You know, there have been many defining moments that really change the course of your life and whatever forever. And then there are what I call threshold moments. And those are when you come up to a threshold of a door, whatever, uh, metaphorically, and you have to make a decision. Do I go through this door? Or if I come to a fork in the road, do I go to the right? Do I go to the left? Or do I do nothing? You know, these are decisions that you have to make. And it's that point where I think that is really critical for people who have an entrepreneurial spirit or even a a musical desire to do something. You know, you can either you can write a song and put it in your piano bench and leave it there forever and nothing will ever happen. Or you can take that song and put it out there by playing it and talking to people and interacting, networking with people. And who knows you may you may meet your Gary Prim in life and find out that, oh, this little song that I thought was very simple and it was' it's beautiful but very simple. he takes it and it's a masterpiece. It's like you know think it's like giving a concept to a famous artist, and you, so you tell him what you want, and you say, "Paint me this picture," and when it comes to you, oh my goodness, it's a masterpiece. So it's you just never know until you take action and do something. So those are threshold moments. And then there's a third kind of moment that you can have. It's also one that I call an "aha" moment. And that's the those special moments that you just you realize that something that's just happened to you is so monumental and so important that it is just like my recording of Rachel's song that night. I can remember, like I said, to the day and minute, <laughs> right exactly where I was. That was to me an aha moment where I knew, I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew that this was it. And this, to me, this was going to be something very special. I just did not know what. So it was one of those aha moments. It's, the light bulb came on and my uh, whole body was just energized to, to go in a new direction and follow my instincts and follow the lead. Mm,
0: that's very powerful. And and uh, and then you started getting involved. And I know that you were very, you were successful in having the song playing on the radio. Like, mm-hmm. how do you do that? If you want to share that, that's another thing that I can hear people that are musicians like, how you get something like that? And now, of course, we have the Internet. And I'm pretty sure that the music industry has changed tremendously since oh, yes. in, in, in that process. So I definitely think that would be great if you can share some of that beginning and getting your song played and and now like how do you have uh, how have you adapted rather into into the new tools you have
1: mm-hmm. well after i got back home from that recording session i of course played the song for my wife linda she had not heard it before because remember this was 19 and 86 no cell phones you know, no wireless anything. It was landline phones. And she had no way, I had no way of playing it for her over the phone. So when I got home, I played it for her, of course. And she was absolutely as taken by it as I was. And at that point, she and I wanted to play it for the world. I mean, it was like, this is fantastic. We got to we gotta play this for everybody. Well, one of the people that I ended up playing it for was my dear friend, Bob McHone. Well, it turns out that Bob had a, saturday morning big band jazz radio program on a local fm station you know where they play play wonderful jazz music and then he talks about who the orchestra was who played bass who you know all the he he knew all those these he was a great jazz aficionado and but he had not heard when i told him the story of recording rachel's song he said well dave i had got to hear this so we went over to bob's office i think it was on wednesday and uh he he uh, He said, I got to hear this. So we put it on his boom box there in his office and played the music. And I can still see Bob sitting there today. And it's just me and him in his little little office there. And the the music's playing. And Bob is sitting there with his eyes closed and the music starts playing. And then I hear this universal uh, affirmative approval sound called. "mm Mm. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) you you know what i'm talking about that's
0: good
1: yeah yeah you know "Mm, that's good oh and hit. you know before the song was finished he had tears running down his cheeks and he said dave this is a this will be a standard and he said i this is just unbelievable he said you've got to let me play this on my radio program Uh, and i said well of course but uh, all i have is this reel-to-reel master tape that's That's all I have in the cassette tapes. And he said, well, if you'll loan me the master tape, I'll take good care of it. And we'll make a copy and I'll get it back to you. I did. And sure enough, this this next Saturday morning on Bob's radio show, before he played anything else, he starts out and and does a a, a wonderful intro telling about me and this song and whatever. And then he says, and now I'm going to play for you my favorite song, Rachel's song in that wonderful radio voice of his. And and. uh, so he plays Rachel's song and I'm, I recorded it off the radio at home. So I do have a recording of that first re- <laughs> radio. Oh, that's Airplay. So
0: awesome.
1: But uh, in about a 30 minutes or so, the phone rings and it's the station manager for the radio station and he's calling to tell me that he said, I've been in radio for over 20 years and I have never had this happen before to me in my life. He said, as soon as Bob played Rachel's song on the radio, our phone bank at the radio station, and they've got, you know, about 10 or 12 phone numbers that you can call. And it rolls over. All of them lit up. He said, everybody was calling in saying, What is that song that you just played? Mm-hmm. Can you play Rachel's song again and tell me more about this Combs fellow from Winston-Salem? <laughs> and he said, This is incredible. He said, Son, you've got a winner here. He said, You need to do something with this song. I said, Okay. <laughs> All right. So that was another one of those. I guess it was a combination of a threshold and an aha moment when I realized that, yes, indeed, I better do something with this song to go beyond just that one radio station in Greensboro. Mm -hmm. So I got busy and I started calling FM easy listening radio stations around the country. Now, back then, we did have about 400 easy listening stations. Today, that format is only down maybe to less than five, probably in the whole country. It's a I I think it's a pretty sad situation, Mm -hmm. but uh, anyway, there, back then we had about 400 and I I, I purchased the list of the radio stations from this radio and R and R radio and records magazine. And so I had the phone numbers and I would call and I would just ask the, the program director, Ken, would you take uh, and play, consider playing Rachel's song and send them a copy of it. They all did. They all loved the song. And so I would, Call and call and call, but eventually some of them would say, well, we don't do our own programming. We get our programming from a syndicator in Chicago. With, it's called Bonneville Broadcasting. I said, okay, well, give me the phone number of Bonneville Broadcasting. So I got the phone number of them and got to speak to their program director, sent him a copy of Rachel's song, and he loved it. He said, Dave, I'm going to put this in my, my rotation playlist for all my stations, and there are over 200 of them. So Mm -hmm. bingo, I go from, you know, a handful of radio stations that I've been able to contact to now all over the whole country, 200 radio stations and and then more that I'm still contacting. So that's how it got from just one radio airplay to every easy listening station in the entire country. And and that station in Greensboro, they (laughs) it was so popular. The DJ would have to play that song every hour. I mean, they played it literally every hour, somewhere on that station for over a year. And it was just totally amazing. And then I started getting something I'd never gotten before, fan mail. Hmm. People would listen to the song on the radio and call like they did in Greensboro. And they'd say, what's that song? Can you give me that guy's phone number or address or something? I've got to get my own copy of that. Now, remember, I didn't have any cassette. I didn't even have any cassette tapes of it at that point. I was if somebody wanted a copy, I had to make them one on my I've still got it over here, one of those double track Mm -hmm. cassettes where you put a blank in one side and they're mastering another and push duplicate and and it copies the cassette. But it's in real time. So for a three minute and forty five second song, it takes three minutes and forty five seconds to copy it.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a you to make a number of copies, that's gonna take a long time. Yes. But anyway, people were writing me letters and telling me how much they enjoyed the music. And I got a letter from some lady in Atlanta, Georgia. She said, this was around Christmas time in that year. She said, I was in a traffic jam in Atlanta, Georgia, Christmas traffic jam. And your song came on the radio and turned a terrible traffic jam into a wonderful experience.
0: That's (laughs) beautiful. That is beautiful. And then you realize the impact you can make by just putting something out there. And then Mm -hmm. it's receiving so many different ways. It's incredible. What a journey.
1: Yeah, I got another letter from a lady in in, uh, New Jersey. She had just finished her training as an EMT, emergency medical technician. And she and her husband were on their way home and they were driving down the the street in their neighborhood. And she looked over and saw an older elderly gentleman collapse right on the sidewalk. So she stopped the car, opened the door. She runs over to the man to see if she can help him. And at the same time, she goes over there to to start to see if he can if she can help him, whether he's having a heart attack or a panic attack or you know whatever. She hears music coming out of the car on the car radio, and so she yelled back to her husband, said, "Turn that music up loud." So I guess they were parked right beside where she was, and so he turned the music up, and she said, "I com- comforted the fella, the gentleman, and he he eventually settled down and and was okay." And so. She got back in the car and she said, man, we got to find out what that song was. And so <laughs> they called the radio station and they, <laughs> she said, what was that song that you were playing at six oh seven PM, blah, blah, blah. And he, and he, without even missing the beat, she said, he said, Oh, that was Rachel's song. Cause apparently mm-hmm. hers wasn't the first call he'd ever got about that song. So she got my address. He gave her my address and, and she wrote me this story, this letter in a story. And, uh, Said that uh, that that song really made a huge difference in this man's life. It really calmed him down and was so special at that time. And so those kind of letters started coming in, and it was that wasn't the only ones. I have since then. I've had over fifty thousand people write me letters and notes. Fifty thousand. Wow. Now that's a bunch, and that Amazing. is enough enough of a bunch that I ended up writing this book. <laughs> this. Mm-hmm. this uh, a lot of the stories in fact chapter 21 in my book is 22 pages of nothing but these these wonderful stories that I've selected to put in the book
0: oh that that is beautiful and, and so tell us about uh, a little bit more about the book touched by music what prompted you to just to document this whole incredible journey you've been in
1: yes it it was it uh you know this this basically my journey was beginning with Rachel's song through 14 albums. And then once I had about two or three albums and I was able to sell my music, uh, my cassette tapes and CDs, which were uh, a new, CDs really came around in the late, uh, mid to late 80s. -hmm. And so I was selling my music through gift shops all over the country. And I was able to quit my job in 1992 and do nothing but my music full time because the sales of my music through these gift shops all over the country. And I had a, over a thousand gift shops playing and selling my music. And that's another whole story how I got those. But uh, that generated enough income. It, I was making two or three times what I was at at by the time I quit my job.
0: Wow, I love that. I, I have so, to check into because I was in that time, I was a big listening, <laughs> easy listening fan, because when I would study doing my master's, I would always play like piano, like that kind of very nice music. I have to check on my collection. Maybe I mm-hmm. I, I have one you know, of those.
1: It, it's funny. I, I have run into people, total strangers, and get to talking about my music. And they'll say, oh, well, I have this album. And it may, it may be Rachel's song or it may be one of my other albums. And so the music has been around for over 40 years now. So yeah. it's, uh, the chances are you may have some I of I wouldn't my be music. surprised because
0: to <laughs> me, it's the kind of music you can play around. And, and I would sit to study for hours. Or mm-hmm. the entire day, sometimes, and and I needed something that it wouldn't, you know, like you listen it over and over, and it's always pleasing. So I, I do have a a big collection. I have to
1: check it. Well, the thing I've I've really noticed, I have a lot of letters from young people and students who actually do study to my music. Yeah, and because my instrumental music, it's all instrumental. There are no words. So you know, if if you're listening to a song that you love that has lyrics. You're probably going to be playing those lyrics true. over in your head that because you're you're singing the song. Yes. Well mine, my my work my music doesn't have words. So for listening and while you're studying or doing creativity kind of things, the music is not going to be distracting to you. It's going to complement, I think, what you're doing like in, like you said when you're studying or writing or whatever. Absolutely. So, uh, Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So I know I'm, I'm sure that part of the book, too, I know you're big on also like trying to inspire other entrepreneurs. What could you say to somebody, let's say like my husband or like my other guest in Back to Basics, where they know and they they do have the tools and but they they're lacking that maybe conviction that say that you can transition because I think if they, at some point you have to take a leap of faith, right? Like uh, most people, yes. uh, and not, uh, not only with music, and this is what this program is about. It's, it sounds to me that at some point you went back to basics and you say, my music is really, there's, you know, my body reacts different, my, you know, all these things. And then, of course, you follow things and they just didn't happen at once. But at some point, you I'm sure you had to take a little bit of a leap of faith and saying, "Okay, I cannot be traveling the world, the, the the country, going to factories, plus doing this." <laughs> so I, I'm always curious about that that part. And what advice do you have for somebody maybe that is in a similar s- a situation?
1: Well, of course, everybody's case is different, and and in my case, the the. I was doing my music business in the evenings and on weekends while I was working at AT&T network systems. And I was having to do a lot of traveling. I, I enjoyed my job. I really enjoyed the people that I was working with, my 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 boss and my boss's boss. All those were great people. But it is it always in the back of my mind, when will I know it is the right time for me to say goodbye, AT&T, and hello, entrepreneurship, working for yourself? And so I I wrote an article in Guidepost magazine telling the story of my making that decision. And Guidepost is a little magazine you're probably familiar with. Yes. This was in 1994 that I wrote the article. But it was the story about what I did in 1991 and 92, deciding to quit my job. Basically, I was growing my business and keeping good track of the earnings from my business and I have my MBA from Wake Forest University, so I'm a very business-oriented person anyway. So I kept good records. I knew my, my trajectory of where the growth of my business was going, and, and I knew how to grow it at that point with new new customers and new gift shops and a new album every, every year. So I had one album, then the next year two albums, and the next year three, and so forth. And I had begun to build a mailing list at the time. This was physical mailing with U.S. Mm-hmm. mail. And uh, it it grew, and eventually, the last time I did a mailing, I had twenty seven thousand people. I sent a a, an order form and a notice for an announcement. So the business grew that way, but I was really struggling with when do I quit my full pay, good paying, full time job at AT and T because I grew up in a family where the you were expected to go to work for if you got a job with a great corporation like AT and T or General Electric or any of big, these big companies, you, you the thing back then was you stayed with them for 30, 35, 40 years, whatever. You get your gold watch and whatever, and you retire from that company. Uh, and that was the expected norm. Well, so for me, it was a real struggle to say, I've worked at AT&T for over 22 years now. I'm not old enough to retire. I don't have enough years. Uh, 25 years was the magic number to be even eligible to retire. And uh, of course, I was only four, let's see, I was 44 years old. So I wasn't even close to the age of 50, which was another magic number. And so I said, yeah, I just can't stand, sit around here for six more years, getting older, just so I can uh, qualify for a retirement. I said, I have bigger things to do. This, this music is taking off and I have, I've got to do something. So I was sitting in church one Sunday morning and it was the prelude part of the service for the full service began and i'm sitting there you know you're kind of meditating and getting yourself in a worshipful state of mind and i'm struggling with this this dilemma in my mind about when when do, how will i know how will i know and i'm sure i said a prayer to the good lord send me a sign I, maybe i was thinking he was going to have a bolt of lightning and thunder and <laughs> burning bush and all this stuff to let me know that i was making the right decision and i sit there and it and it all of a sudden, I remembered a letter that I had gotten from a fan that week. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. It was a simple little letter. It simply said, Dave Combs, your music is what the good Lord put you on this planet to do. Mm. Wow. Signed by his name. And I thought, well, Lord, you must think I am the densest Christian on the planet because here (laughs) you've sent me thousands of letters from people all over the world that I didn't know telling me how wonderful the music has touched their lives. And so, yeah, I get it. Okay. I got it. So that was the moment that I felt really comfortable that I was making the right decision, that I had gotten the message finally, <laughs> yes. it, it finally came through to me to make the right decision. And uh, so that's how I reached it. But it was, it was a, a struggle because you're always, it's the tug of war between the the, the known if you're on a salary, the known salary income that's that's there every month or week or whatever you get paid, versus it's all on me now. If I'm an entrepreneur, if I'm yeah. making something out of this, it's all on me. Yeah. So that's a big right. decision. But hopefully, when you you take some action, the main thing is that you have a a product, an idea, a service, or something that you do really well that you that people want to pay you for. Now that's yeah, kind sure. of a key element to it. It's not just that they want to be entertained. You have to figure out, is, are people willing to pay me to do whatever it is that I do or sell or create? Yeah. And if that's the yeah. case, then, then you have, then you can begin developing your business model and so forth. Like uh, in my case, I was selling through gift shops. Mm-hmm. I started with one and, and that one gift shop sold a bunch of tapes and CDs beyond my imagination. And I realized that that was the way to sell my music, not through the big box stores or music stores. It was through gift shops. Mm -hmm. And so once I realized the the mode or the the method of selling my music through gift shops, all I needed to do was duplicate that. It's kind of, I guess you would call it the franchise principle or the principle of duplication. You find something that works on a small scale and make sure it does. Now, don't just wishful thinking. You can't just... Wish that your business is going to succeed. You have, as my wife says, uh, she's the controller of the state of North Carolina, by the way, so she knows her numbers and stuff. She (laughs) says numbers don't lie. You, you, you. If the numbers say X, then that's what the truth is. So when you have your model of your business down to where you know that you have a gross margin, a profit that if you multiply that and duplicate it, it will be profitable. Then you have a chance to to really feel confident that as you work hard on it and take action to to grow your business and grow your product or grow your sales or grow your exposure, then you will be able eventually to, to make that leap from working for somebody else to working for yourself. But that's, it's a very, I think it's a very, uh, it's not a cold hard number kind of situation, but it is one where you better have your numbers in order to, to do it because your' a leap of faith is is it, sometimes it may work out but sometimes it won't and maybe that's not a bad thing you'll learn a you'll learn a valuable lesson in the process but you need to be sure of what you're doing as best you can to, to take that leap of faith
0: mm, that's great advice great advice well as we are approaching the the end of the interview I always say is there anything else we haven't discussed between besides the songs the CDs, the book that you want to share with us?
1: Well, I, I do want to address the folks in your audience who play an instrument, like whether it's a guitar or a piano, particularly your pianists, the people that play the piano. Everyone that seems to hear Rachel's song, hear the music, would want, if they play the piano, they're like me. When I heard a beautiful song on the, on the radio, whether it was uh, the, the theme from Love Story with Henry Mancini, those kind of songs, I wanted to get the sheet music to play it myself. I mm-hmm. love playing those beautiful songs. Well, same was true with my music, my instrumental music. I have piano players that would say, I would love to play Rachel's song. Do you have the sheet music? Well, I, early early on, I created the sheet music for Rachel's song because I'd, I was getting tons of requests for it. Awesome. And, and I, I did it by ear. I had Gary Prim's recording. I was spending a lot of time on airplanes. I would have my little Walkman cassette player and my headset on, and I would play a, play a measure, write some notes down, rewind it, play it again, write more. And I did that measure by measure through the whole song by ear, picking out the piano notes that Gary played, note for note, the whole song. So when you buy the sheet music for Rachel's song, you are getting the exact note for note transcription of what Gary played. And I ended up doing that for every song that I ever recorded that was in one of my originals. I have 11 piano music books that I've created. Oh, wow. wow. And you can order those on amazon.com uh, as well, or you can get them from Combs Music, or if you want them instantly, there's a company called Sheet Music Plus, Sheetmusicplus.com, and you go on there, and all of my songs are on Sheet Music Plus. For 499, you can buy the song and instantly download a PDF of it, print it out and start playing it right now. You don't have to order it. That is
0: brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, This has been a great conversation. I cannot end it without saying besides music, which obviously makes you tick, is there anything else that in your times when you're feeling down, when you're feeling stressed, is there anything else that makes you tick besides music?
1: I love photography and taking wonderful pictures photographs. And, and you'll if you go on my website, uh, you'll, you'll see that I also love photography. All the covers to all my albums were photos that I took. And when you go on YouTube, I have a YouTube channel called Com- just Combs Music, all run together. And when you go to the Combs Music YouTube channel, you'll see tons of videos that I've created over the years, including Rachel's song, that has my photography in the background, and my music playing along with it. So there's lots of music videos. I have some that are a single song playing, but for the nursing home and assisted living facilities in this country that were locked down during the pandemic, I created music videos that will play six to seven hours in length. And you'll find those on my YouTube as well so that they can put it up on the big screen at the nursing home, leave it playing, it'll play all day long and it plays my music and beautiful photography at the same time.
0: Wow. You you really are a master of creating synergy, <laughs> creating, uh, you know, beauty. So I thank you so much for being back to basics and for inspiring us all.
1: Uh, wow. This has been a real pleasure and a, a, a joy to talk with you, Leticia. This is great.
0: Thank you. And to everybody out there, thank you for listening. And don't forget to check the show notes where we'll have uh, Dave's information and where you can get this beautiful music. Until the next time.